After that, I feel like closing in prayer. Well, I don't like to say goodbye, so I'm not going to give a long goodbye speech. Just say that I don't have any words to say how much I love you all and how much I feel a part of your family. And you know, true friendship is not like an infatuation. When people are infatuated with each other, they have to see each other, talk to each other, touch each other constantly to feed the relationship, to keep it going. True friendship lasts over the years and over the miles in spite of all obstacles. And even though I'm going to be halfway around the world, that doesn't mean you're not going to be in my heart. And I know that I'm in yours because you've already told me a thousand times. So we're together. Praise the Lord. Thank you for all of your hospitality. So many acts of love that I couldn't even begin to name them all. All the little details. The smiles, the hugs, a thousand things anyway. Just thank you for them all. Now, let's go where we were going. We haven't been to Matthew. So we're going to Matthew chapter 20. While you're turning to it, Matthew chapter 20. I want to say thank you to the Gospel Touch for those songs. I'm guilty of asking for them, directly or indirectly, but the last one was a surprise. You can never have the last word with them. We have a saying in Spanish that goes with that last song. We say, El camino de mañana conduce a la ciudad de nunca. It means the road called tomorrow leads to the city called never. The road called tomorrow leads to the city called never. Matthew chapter 20, verse 29. I tell you, before we read there, let's read two verses earlier in the chapter, verses 18 and 19, and then we'll jump over to verse 29. Matthew 20 and verse 18 says the word of the Lord, Behold, We go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and to the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. Verse 29. And as they departed from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the wayside, when they heard that Jesus passed by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou Son of David. And the multitude rebuked them, because they should hold their peace. But they cried the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou Son of David. And Jesus stood still, and called them, and said, What will ye that I should do unto you? They say unto him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. And immediately they received their sight and they followed him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time that we can be together. And we do pray that as we look into your word, your spirit will move among us. Once again, 
We are nothing without you, Lord. You are the vine. We are the branches. Everything we have, we receive from you. Let not man be glorified. Let not man be admired. Let not man's sayings be remembered. But let it be your word, your voice, your will that prevails among us tonight. You have full liberty to touch our lives, to lead us along the path of eternal life. And we pray that you will do it, that we will be able to say, tonight, once again, the Lord was with us. He met with us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to title the study tonight, The Last Chance. Last Chance. Not because it's the last night in our series, but because it was the last chance for these men of whom we have just read. I don't know, you've probably driven. I drove uh, from Texas to California several times, drove out here to begin with, and then back to visit, and then back out here again. And every time we went through the desert uh, toward Arizona, there's a sign that says, Last Chance for Gas. For a hundred miles, or I don't know how many miles it says now. It's been so long since I've driven it. But it's, it reminds you of that. This is your last chance. And if you pass that point, well, you were warned. I hear it every time I fly. I'm sure I'll hear it tomorrow morning. Last call for passengers, for all passengers on United Flight 249 to New York. Last call. Or paging passenger so-and-so, please proceed urgently to gate 24. This is the last call. And we have that in life. We have it in the Bible. We have it in the text before us tonight. And we have it in life. Life is not a circle. Life is not a labyrinth. Life is a line that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And these men were reaching that point in their life, where they had their last look at Jesus, their last opportunity to hear his words, their last opportunity to be near him. He was at the end of his public ministry. He said in verse 18, he told his disciples, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem. They're walking up from the valley, from the Jordan Valley. Now they're going to go through Jericho, and they're going up that hill, up those mountains, and they're going to go up to Jerusalem, and that's the last time he's doing that. We go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed to the chief priests, to the scribes. They shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. Last time through that part of Israel. I want to tell you a story about a man who's a friend of mine who lives down in uh, Fremont. He went to Italy one time. Took a vacation. This was before he was married. And uh, visited Rome and different places around Italy. And in the last day that he was in Italy, before he had to leave and come back to the United States, he wanted to go and visit Pompeii. He'd heard a lot about the ruins of Pompeii. So he went to the train station and he looked at the schedule. And um, he thought he pretty much understood. He bought his ticket. It said which track the train was on. He counted the tracks, looked at it, and made sure it was the right train, the right track. Found his car, found his seat, and he was there about 20 minutes before the train was supposed to leave, which is plenty of time because Italian trains don't run on time anyway. 
now that Mussolini isn't there anymore, what they say about uh, Mussolini, the Italians say, that, well, one thing he did good, he made the trains run on time. Because if they came late, that was the end of the engineer. But he's not there, and the trains don't run on time. So he was way ahead. Sat down in the car to wait. A few other people sat down in the car with him. And so he looked around and noticed the car was filling up. And he sat there and became engrossed in whatever he was reading. He looked at his watch. It was time for the train to leave. It didn't leave. He thought, well, trains are late. He sat a few more minutes. Some people went out. Some people came in. But more people were going out than coming in. And so he decided to get up and look. And he got up and he walked over to the door of the train. He opened it and he looked out. And he noticed that there was no train on the track. Only the car that he was on. (laughs) As it turns out, there had been an announcement made in Italian. He didn't hear it. And apparently the rest of the people in the car didn't either. Or they didn't pay it any attention. They announced that the composition of the train had changed and that the last car would not be going to Pompeii. And so there he was in his seat with his ticket in the right place at the right time and the train left and he was left behind. And he scurried out to the station and he looked at the schedule and he tried to talk to the man in the window. As it turned out, that was the last train to Pompeii. There was no other train that would go that day. He couldn't get there. And so he had to stay that day in Rome. And the next day, he left for the States. He never got to Pompeii. Never got there. He missed his last chance. Whose fault was it? Oh, they changed the composition of the train. Whose fault was it? He didn't understand the announcement. Well, in the end, it doesn't really matter whose fault it was, does it? You can spread the blame around as much as you want. The bottom line is he still didn't get to Pompeii. He missed his last opportunity. And so with that illustration before us, we want to look at two men tonight who didn't miss their last opportunity. And we want to remember, we don't know when our last opportunity is coming. You don't know when yours is coming. And if you want to play roulette with eternity... Well, you're forewarned. Opportunity calls at the door of your life, and you must know how to respond. There are times when Jesus is near. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, you know that he's speaking to you. You know that his Holy Spirit is speaking to you. You know that the scripture that you're reading and looking at, the conversation you're having, something pricks your conscience. And you know that God is speaking, that he's saying something, that this is an opportunity. And then you have to decide, what am I going to do with this opportunity that I have? Am I going to take a chance and hope I'll have another one? Or is this it? Is this my last one? Opportunity comes. Many people waste their opportunities. And then when it's too late, they cry. Sometimes we hear folks say, Oh, there will be another chance. Maybe later. Not today. I had a friend uh, when I was growing up who didn't like to eat vegetables. Well, who did when we were growing up? But in my house, we were always taught you had to eat whatever was put on your plate. But... um, 
when company came, you know, the company got the treatment, the nice treatment. When he came over, uh, instead of putting peas on his plate, my mother asked him, would he like some peas? I should be so lucky. <laughs> Never mind, I like peas now. But I remember looking at him with envy, and he, said, he smiled and said to my mother, none today, thank you. He never wanted any peas. But he wasn't going to tell my mother, Jack, I don't like peas. Yeah. He said it in the most polite way, none today, thank you, which gave the impression that he didn't have anything against eating peas, but he just didn't particularly care for any right then, see. And we do this sometimes spiritually. Instead of coming right out and saying, forget it, you're wasting your time. Instead of saying, I have no intention of believing this. Benjamin Franklin, at least, was honest when George Whitfield visited America. He visited Benjamin Franklin, stayed in his home in Philadelphia, was kept there as a guest. And he spoke, when Benjamin Franklin writes of that, he spoke, George Whitfield spoke to him frankly about Christ and salvation on more than one occasion. But in his diary, Benjamin Franklin wrote, but I never gave him the pleasure of seeing me converted. None today, thank you. These men didn't say that. These men are in a situation where they have one last opportunity, and they didn't know it. You see, this is the thing. When that last opportunity comes... There's not going to be a little red light that begins to flash in your mind. You're not going to feel some feeling. There's not going to be a voice that comes out of nowhere and says, this is it. Last call. It's not going to happen. It's going to seem like all those other times. But then when it's gone, it's gone forever. These men, I like the story of these men because it's a story that has a happy ending. It illustrates the blessing that people can have when they don't put off till tomorrow what they can do right now in their relationship with God. They see an opportunity and they take it. Now, we have blind men here. These blind men, we're going to talk about them a little bit, but these blind men couldn't walk around Israel looking for Jesus. They couldn't see him. Well, they're sitting, begging by the roadside, And he comes by, and suddenly they discover that he's coming. They hear the noise. The multitude is following. There's a great commotion, and they hear it. And I'm sure they asked, or by listening, they heard who it was. And as soon as they heard it, they begin to cry for him immediately, call out for him. They didn't say, well, maybe tomorrow. He's going to Jerusalem. Well, when he comes back, to go back, because that's what the Jews did. The ones who lived in the north of Israel, and Jesus was from Galilee, they would come, and they would come down by the Jordan River, come down through the, um, the plains of Jezreel, where the, that um, brook uh, empties into the Jordan River. They would come down the Central Valley, and then they would come up by Jericho and come up the, the hill country into Jerusalem from there. And after the feast, they would turn and go back the same route. So he could have said, I'll catch you on the flip side. Now they're going to Jerusalem for the feast. When they come back, I'm so glad. And I know they are. Those men are already with the Lord. I know 
And I know they're so glad if they could be here tonight, they would say, don't wait for the flip side. Don't count on tomorrow. Let's think about these men for just a minute. What they illustrate before we actually go through these verses. Two blind men begging by the roadside. Now, those are historical, literal historical men that were really doing that. But they illustrate something for us. And that's what we're going to think about for a minute. First of all, they illustrate the condition of the nation of Israel. A blind man begging by the roadside. Israel was a nation, God's chosen people, chosen and blessed by him. But God warned them in the Old Testament. He said, if you obey my word, if you follow my commandments, he said, then I will make you the head of the nations and not the tail. But if you disobey my word, if you turn away from following me, and then he begins to tell them the things that are going to happen to them. And they're going to be disinherited, and they're going to lose the land. They're going to lose the blessing. And you see these two men sitting by the roadside. They're blind. They can't see. They're poor men. They're beggars. They don't have any riches. And they're not in homes. They're like homeless sitting there by the roadside. That is the condition of the nation of Israel at the time Christ came. They were not the head of the nations. They were the tail of the nations. Rome was the head of the nations. Rome ruled the world in those days. And Israel as a nation and as a people was sitting by the wayside. They were sitting by the roadside. People were passing them by. They were not in any way influencing what was taking place in the world. They were observers. That's all. And blind. Couldn't see. Not necessarily with their eyes, although they had their quota of blind people, but spiritually blind. People with the Messiah right in front of them, doing his miracles, giving his teachings, presenting to them from the Old Testament in accordance with the the prophets, his credentials as Messiah. They couldn't see it. They were blind. And they were begging. A nation that had no blessings left to give. Had none for themselves and none to share with others. Poor, blind, beggar sitting by the roadside. That was where Israel ended up as a nation. Because they neglected and because they did not believe the word of God. So we have these people. We have the paralyzed man. We have the blind men. We have the leprous men. We have all of these different people with these different ailments in the New Testament. And each one of them in one way or another illustrates to us something about the condition of the nation of Israel. But at the same time, they illustrate like these men, the condition of the person who does not have Christ as Lord and Savior. The condition of the natural person. We say the natural man. We mean the human being just as he is born. What does it say in John chapter 3? We had it the first night. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's all it is. You can dress it up or dress it down. You can teach it more or less, but it's nothing else, nothing other than flesh. And these poor men, they illustrate for us the condition of the sinner, blind. A person who has never been born again, who doesn't have Christ as his Lord and Savior, is a blind person. Blind to spiritual things. Let's look at 2 Corinthians for just a minute. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. 
2 Corinthians 4, 4. In whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Blinded by the God of this world. Who is that? The Lord Jesus referred to him in John's gospel as the prince of this world. He's speaking of Satan. The God of this world, the prince of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not. We're not talking about blind eyes then. We're talking about a blind mind. None so blind as he who does not want to see. My mind is made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. Blindness. It doesn't fit into my scheme. It doesn't fit into my personal philosophy. It doesn't, uh, there's no space for it on my, on my 10 year goal statement. I can't fit this in. This isn't what I think. I don't like the way this sounds. And so the scales go down and the person is blind. Blinded. We can do it to ourselves, but this verse is talking about a spiritual power. An enemy of God, an enemy of human souls one of whose primary objectives is to blind us and to make it, if possible, impossible for us to see the truth. And we feel this sometimes in the preaching of the gospel. We feel the struggle. We feel the fight because we're explaining things that to us are as clear as the nose on our face. And they just don't get it. As an old preacher from South Africa used to say, it didn't percolate to the first cavity of their brain. He said he preached one time. His name was Alfred Gibbs. He said he preached one time. Um, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace are you saved through faith, not of works, not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. It is the gift of God. He, he explained this verse. He went all through it. He said he gave seven points, and each one started with P. And he went all through these verses, these two verses. Salvation is not of works, it's all of grace. And he explained all the things that those meant. And he said there was a nicely dressed uh, woman sitting uh, right on the front listening to him, smiling the whole time, listening. And as soon as he was done, he said he gave it to him 40 minutes. Bim, bam, bim, bam. He gave it to him over and over and over. And then she walked right up to him after and said, thank you for that wonderful message. That was very illuminating. And he said, what did you learn about it? Uh, what did you learn from it? He, she said, well, I learned... That in order to, to have salvation, we have to do the best we can. He said it didn't percolate to the first cavity of her brain. Forty minutes of my best argument. Forty minutes of showing two verses. And he said, she didn't get it. Another man who was a gospel preacher stopped at a, a gas station. And back in those days, the attendants came. They were called service stations in those days. <laughs> We won't get off on that now. <laughs> and uh, my brother likes to joke about this. You go around to the car and hit it on the front and say, how about that hood? They used to check under the hood. So he checked under the hood, checked the gas, uh, checked the oil, checked the levels of the fluids, the liquids. And then when uh, he paid him, 
the preacher said to him, I wonder if you could give me some directions. Yes, where would you like to go? He said, well, how could a person get to heaven? And he said, oh, he smiled. Then he began to tell him, keep the golden rule and try to keep the Ten Commandments and do the best you can. And the preacher became angry with him. He said, man, I asked you for the way to heaven and you told me the direct way to hell. Came on a little strong, I think. But sometimes we need that to wake us up, don't we? Blindness. Blindness. Can't see. Don't know the way. In a room, all the lights are off. Can't see anything. Don't know where the furniture is. Don't know what you're going to bump into. Don't know if there's a hole you're going to fall into. Don't know if there's anything to trip over. Don't know what's out in front of you. You're blind. You can't see. This is the way the scripture describes the person who does not have Christ. They don't see. They just don't see it. And what happens when we begin to understand the truth of the gospel? We say, oh, I see. When we understand it, we say, I see. Now I see. Because we're talking about our mind. We're talking about our understanding. Now we're getting the point. Now we're beginning to see it clearly. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17 talks about people who didn't know they were blind. Last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 3. These are the words of Jesus. He says in verse 14, let's read from there. Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee or spit thee or vomit thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. They didn't even know it. You say, I'm good. I'm okay. The Lord says, you don't know. You poor, ignorant thing, he says. You don't know. That you are wretched. You're not blessed. You're not blessed. You're wretched. You're a loser if you don't have Christ as your Lord and Savior. I don't care what the world says. You're a loser. And miserable. Someone described people at the, at the, what do you call them now? I can't think of the name of them in English. The, the parks, the attractions like Disneyland and that sort of thing. He said, I saw a lot of them standing in line and they didn't really look happy. He said, they had this look on their face like they were trying so hard to have fun. In order for them to be happy, they have to be doing something like that. They're not naturally that way. There's no song in their heart, no joy, no inner happiness. 
no contentment. They find their happiness in entertainment, in diversion of some kind, in amusement, because they don't naturally have it. They have to go get it out of a park somewhere, out of a bottle, off of a screen, somewhere they have to go. And they're looking for it and trying to find it, trying to fill up their life, trying to entertain and satisfy themselves. They don't know that it's true what Jesus said. You're miserable. You're miserable. And poor. A person who goes into eternity empty-handed with no Savior, no heaven. Is there anybody any poorer than that? And blind, you see. And this is what we were coming to. The Lord says they're blind. And those people said that they were Christians. The Laodiceans said they were Christians. Isn't it interesting that the Lord is on the outside of the seventh church, the last church. He's on the outside. And he's knocking on the door. He's trying to get in. He's not even in there. They're having a wonderful time, a grand old time in there. And they say, we have need of nothing. We've got it all. We're the satisfied church. And Jesus is out there. Hello? Hello? Anyone hear me knocking? Could I come in? That begins, that downward trek in the book of Revelation begins in chapter 2 with the church at Ephesus. When the Lord said to that church at Ephesus, he said, But I have something against you, he says, because you have left, not lost. Losing something and leaving something are two different things. And he says, you have left your first love. You see, the Lord is very sensitive about that. He's more sensitive than we are. You left your first love. And he spoke to the church right away about it. And as we go work our way through the seven churches, we come to that last one, that first one the Lord warned them about leaving their first love. And when you come to the last one, the Lord is not even in there. He's on the outside knocking. And they're happy on the inside. This sound like Christians to you? Poor, wretched, miserable, blind, how do we fit that in with those who are born again or blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ? We don't fit it in. We're talking about opposites. We're talking about people who have the form of godliness but no power. And there is a spiritual blindness. There is a spiritual blindness that can affect even people who say that they think they're Christians. It's a dangerous thing. It affects the unsaved. It affects those who do not have new life in Christ. And it affects them to such a way that they can even become religious and become involved in churches and church activities and still be blind and wretched and miserable. And the Lord warns us about it in the last book of the Bible. And these two men begging by the roadside, these two blind men, they remind us of the spiritual condition of people who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who do not have Him, who have never been born again, who do not have eternal life. They're not in the kingdom of God. They're on the roadside. They don't have all the riches and the blessings in Christ, all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. They're poor. They don't have any blessings. And they're going through life begging, going through life trying to see what they can get out of it, what they can get out of the world, what they can get for themselves. And they're begging through life, trying to find something for themselves in life. The Christian doesn't have to go through life that way. We've already been given eternity's greatest treasure. 
Christians are not beggars. And if you hear one on a television or a radio who says he's a Christian and he's begging, you just remember what I just told you. Christians are not beggars. God is not poor. Blind men. So let's think about them. Verse 29. It says, As they departed from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. Now this is it. This is his last time in Jericho. When he entered into Jericho, and Matthew's not concerned with that here, but we all know the story, and Adel told me it was one of his favorites, but I'm sorry. I couldn't work it in this time. Maybe next time. He, lo- he likes Zacchaeus, and I do too. Because the Lord told Zacchaeus, you come down. And we talked about that the first night, didn't we? How the Lord gives us a good down bringing. He brings us down. Well, that's all we get of Zacchaeus tonight, Adel. So he, 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 he found Zacchaeus. Got to keep him satisfied. We found Zacchaeus. He found him when he came in. And that's his last time in Jericho. And now he's going out. And as he's going out, the multitude is following him. Why? Well, some are interested in him. And some are curious because they're going up to Jerusalem. They know he's going to Jerusalem. They know what it's for, the feast of the Passover. And three times in the Old Testament, the Old Testament teaches us that three times every year, the Jew was supposed to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of Jehovah. And all the nation is supposed to gather there in the city of Jerusalem, in the temple for the celebration of these feasts. And the Passover is probably, well, besides the Day of Atonement, which was the most important, we could say the Passover was probably the one that people thought the most of. The Passover. It reminded them of when they left Egypt. And so all the people are going up. They're going with the Lord. Some are with him. Some are just walking along the road because there's a multitude of people making that pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Crowd of people. People of all kinds. There's the disciples. They're following the Lord. Others maybe who have come to know him and other people who are curious about him. There were a lot of people, you know, in those days who just hung out around Jesus. You know what I mean? They hung out around him. Why? Oh, they want to see what he's going to do. He's the miracle worker. He's the teacher. He's the one that can answer the Pharisees and the chief priests. When he talks to them, he shuts them down. What's he going to say to them? What are they going to say to him? How's he going to answer them? Curious people. Not people with a sense, so much of a sense of need for their own selves. But people who were looking to see, they were interested to see what he was going to do, what he was going to say. They want to be there. They don't want to have somebody tell them about it. They want to say, I saw it. I was there. You know what he did? They said this to him and he answered them this way. Or this man came up with this sickness and he did this. So you have this multitude of people and we still have that, don't we? I think about it every time we meet together and preach the gospel. You have some people who are curious. Some people who just want to see what's going on and some people who are looking around and seeing who else is there. Some people who are drifting off to sleep. Some people who are looking up and it looks like they're thinking about wonder how they change the fluorescent tubes. You you wonder what they're thinking sometimes. How do they do that? Any little thing distracts them. And then there are people, and you see them. There are people who know why they're there. They have a sense of need. Now, we said it before. In the other studies that we gave of these characters, they came to Jesus. Nicodemus came to Jesus. The leprous man came to Jesus. These blind men couldn't come to Jesus. 
They were sitting there by the roadside. But when they found out that he was near them, they took advantage of that opportunity. How many people walked with Jesus from Galilee down the Jordan Valley up through Jericho? They saw what happened to Zacchaeus. They passed by with these two blind men here and they walked right on into Jerusalem and their lives were never changed. How many? Is that going to be your story tonight? I was there. I saw it. I heard it. And you'll think about that for all eternity. I had my chance. And he even said that. The people, as we said from the very first night, when we talked about the gathering demoniac. When the Lord went over there, that poor man, he got saved, and all the rest of them asked Jesus to leave. He got delivered, and the people uh, were upset about the pigs that drowned, and they asked the Lord to leave, and he got in the boat, and he left. And what did we say? We said it was an evangelistic campaign. Billy Graham never had one like that. Luis Palau never had one like that. Oh, when he comes to Spain, he says, the stadiums are filling up, and in five years, all of Spain will be evangelical. Oh, yeah? Well, I've been living there 18 years. Well, the stadiums fill up. The hillsides filled up when Jesus preached. The people came. But on that first night, that first study that we saw, that man was left standing on the bank alone. Go home to your friends and tell them what the Lord has done for you. And we said that night, everyone in that region... Everyone that wanted help from Jesus got it. Is that right? Everyone that wanted help got it. Because the Lord has given us a will. He has given us the responsibility to choose and to decide. And we are also free to suffer the consequences of our decisions. And so here you have all these people walking along with the Lord. And every single one of them who wants to be helped will be helped. And that's always true. That's always true. There's nothing like a sense of personal need. And that's what I like about these people we've been studying. We've seen it over and over again. People who have a sense of need. They know they need what the Lord has. They're not there to do an intellectual analysis of him and his message. They're not grading the style of his delivery, of his teaching. They're looking for something for themselves. They sense the need. They want a solution to life's problems. They're concerned about their own personal spiritual condition. And this is why these are in the Gospels. Because the Lord is speaking to us through these things. He's telling us over and over again that this is what he wants from us. We can't save ourselves. We can't make ourselves into Christians. We can't change our lives. But there is someone who can if we're willing to get our hands off the steering wheel and turn it over to him. He can do it. He can do it. So here you have this great multitude in verse 29 following the Lord. And in contrast with this great multitude of people of all kinds, look at verse 30. Because the way he says it, he says, behold... And that's like saying, look, he's calling attention to me. He said, but look at this. Here's a great multitude of people following along. They're probably jostling one another, bumping into one another, tripping over one another. And here's two men sitting, sitting by the roadside. 
And everybody's passing them by. Everybody's passing by. A great multitude. And they're going to be able to say the next day, I walked with Jerusalem, with Jesus all the way to Jerusalem. Yeah, I was in that multitude. You know, we left, we walked through the Jezreel Valley. I remember walking by the, the pools of Harod. I remember going down where it goes into the Jordan River, and there the Lord said so and so. And then we went through Jericho, and I remember the Lord called that little short man up out of the tree, told him to come down. He was going to his house. Yeah, he was a short man, Adel. He was a short man. He said, you come down, Zacchaeus. And he went to his house, and that man was a tax collector, you know. And he started giving back everything. He said he gave half of his goods to the poor. And if he had stolen from anybody or taken too much from them, he would return it fourfold. How much money do you think Zacchaeus had left at the end of that day? That ruined his investment portfolio. But the Lord said to him, this day has salvation come to this house. I can't get off of Zacchaeus. Would you quit praying? (laughs) This is not about him. So these people, they're following and they're thinking, I'm going to tell my children, I'm going to tell my wife, I'll be able to tell this. We walked with them all the way and this happened and that happened. And these two blind men, these poor blind men, they can't tell anybody about anything. They go home that day. They're thinking as they're sitting there that day, well, when I get home, they're going to ask me how much money I got today begging. Because they lead them out to this spot on the road. And in many parts of the world, not so much in the United States, but in many parts of the world, you still see this. Beggars. In Jerusalem, all through the Middle East. Even in Spain, they have their place. They have a spot that's theirs. And they're taken there if they can't find it on their own. And they sit there and they beg all day. And those two men, when they went and sat there that day, they thought, and I'm sure they talked to one another as they went through the day, People would throw the money down to them or hand it to them and they would feel of it to see what it was, how big a coin it was. Was it a shekel? Was it a half a shekel? What was it? They're feeling of it and they're saving it. And so they're sitting by the roadside in the heat and they're talking, keeping each other company. They're passing the time and they're doing their little accounting problem, uh, keeping up with how much is in the cash register as they go along, you know, how much they're getting from the begging. And thinking about what they're going to do when they get home. And then comes the multitude. And then comes Jesus. And I don't think those men went out to sit by that road that morning saying, I'm going to go sit out here. Maybe Jesus will come by here today. I don't think they were thinking about that. See, I could be wrong, but I don't think they were thinking about that. But I'll tell you this. When they found out it was him, they put everything else aside. They put everything else aside. It says, two blind men sitting by the wayside... And it says, when they heard that Jesus passed by. Now they're going to make their move. And this is so important. When you hear, when you know, when you understand that Jesus Christ is near. And that this is an opportunity for you. Then the ball is in your court, my friend. What you're going to do. And you don't sit there and wait for him to talk to you. You don't sit there and wait to hear a voice, to feel a feeling, to see a vision. Because it's not about that. Jesus is near. And it's time to make your move. And this is what they do. They weren't following anyone. They couldn't see. But they heard that he was passing by. And what did they say? 
says, one, one of them said to the other. No, they didn't say anything to one to the other. They stopped talking to each other. And they started talking to the Lord. And they didn't talk to the Lord. They didn't whisper to the Lord. They didn't make little signs. Yoo-hoo, Jesus. They didn't try to catch his eye, go catch his attention, you know, as the, he's talking to the multitude and they're going by. They don't know where he is in the multitude. Has he already gone by? Is he right in front of them? Is he coming? Is he near us? Is he far away? They don't know. They're blind. But you don't have to know and understand all those details. But this thing you know, if Jesus is near, you call out for him. Now it's on you, see? So maybe he's on the other side of the road. Or maybe he just passed by. But you're not going to let him get away. You're not going to let him escape. And you don't say, uh, Jesus, Jesus. You know, like sometimes we teach our children uh, to speak to people, to say hello to adults. And maybe they're a little bit intimidated by adults. We say, say hello. And they, go, they look down. And they're so shy. Why aren't they ever that way at home? <laughs> they look down and they're so shy. And we say, say hello to Mr. Smith. Hello, Mr. Smith. <laughs> this little voice. Is that the loudest you can talk in, Mr. Smith? Oh, how sweet. He said, you should hear him at home when he wants a cookie. I want a cookie. <laughs> when he doesn't want to go to bed, it's time to go to bed. Oh, and all the neighbors hear it. Knock on the door. Something wrong? No, no, just he. They don't use that little voice. They don't talk like people who don't want to be heard, who are afraid somebody's going to hear them or people are going to look at them or they're going to make a commotion. See, he's not worried about that. This is my opportunity. Jesus, he starts to call him, probably like this at first. Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. He doesn't know that the voice got through, because it doesn't mean here that they did it one time. They started saying it, see. And then the other one, he said, you didn't say it loud enough. Jesus, have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. And they're calling. And we know they're making a ruckus. How do we know that? Am I making this up? No, look what it says. Look what it says. Verse 31, the multitude rebuked them that they should hold their peace. Be quiet. We're having a conversation with the Lord here. We're talking. Stop all that yelling. Somebody give them some money so they'll be quiet. Is that going to do it? That's what the devil says. Here's some money. Be quiet. Every man has his price, right? So how much would you sell Jesus for? How much? How much do you sell your soul for? How much do you throw away your last opportunity for? 100,000? Quarter of a million? A million? How much? Give the beggar some money so he'll be quiet. That's what the devil says. He looks at us poor, unsaved people. He knows what there is in Christ. He knows what there is in heaven. And he hates God and he hates Christ. And he hates heaven and he's determined to keep as many people from going there and giving glory to God and enjoying eternal life as possible. He is. He's our enemy. The Bible says, 1 Peter says, he goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's a murderer and a liar and an accuser. So he said, tell the beggars to be quiet. Give them some money. Throw a coin over there and let them entertain themselves, feeling of the coin and seeing what it is. And be quiet, he says. The people rebuked him. Be quiet. And there are many people who do that. 
When life's opportunity, life's great and eternity's great opportunity is in front of us, when the Lord is near and the opportunity is there like it is tonight, then those little voices start like the voices of the multitude. Then those thoughts start coming. Then we start calculating. And we hear the world say, be quiet. The world. I love Mr. McDonald's um, definition of the world. You know what it is? It's not the planet. In the Bible, the world is not talking about the planet. The world means, and this is the way he defines it, a system organized and headed by the devil, dedicated to the purpose of keeping people happy without God. Now, that's a little hard to remember maybe, but let's go over it again. A system organized and headed by the devil, dedicated to keeping people happy without God. I say it like this. I'm going to be on the, on the airline tomorrow, Lord willing, and the stewardesses come through, and what do they do? The stewardesses flying the plane? No. Their job is to keep the passengers happy till they reach the destination. Here, read a magazine. Here, look at a movie. Here, have something to drink. Here's a pillow. Rest. That's their job. And that's what the world is doing as we're traveling through life, heading toward eternity at a speed of 60 seconds a minute and 60 minutes an hour. We're headed into eternity. We're headed to a destination. And the world is trying to keep us comfortable. Here, have something to eat. Have something to drink. Here, watch a movie. Here, read a magazine. Here, do this. Do that. Keep yourself occupied until you reach that destination so you don't pay attention to where you're going or how close you are to getting there. This is what the world does. So the world says to us, be quiet. And you start thinking, oh, that means if I, Jesus, and that means that then if I follow him, then I'm not going to be able to go out and do this and that. Think about it this way. If you trust in the Lord Jesus and follow him, then you're not going to be able to go to hell. I mean, let's cut through the fat and get down to the meat. That's what it means. But this is the way the world does. And we hear, and sometimes it's our business associates we're worried about what they're going to say. And sometimes it's the neighbors we're worried about what they're going to say. Sometimes it's our unsaved friends and relatives and we, we think about what they're going to say. Or they come right out and tell us, calm down. They say, you're taking this too seriously. What happened in Pilgrim's Progress? When that man began to read that book, that Bible, in that story by John Bunyan, he began to read it and immediately he got this huge burden on his back. We talked about that, which illustrates how we begin to realize that we're sinners. We feel convicted. We realize our lives, our hearts are contaminated and we're unfit to go to heaven. And this is a weight. We feel the conviction. We feel the guilt. We begin to feel it. And he walked about in the house back and forth and out in the fields reading this book and weeping. This is the way he felt about himself. And his family would sit down with him. In one of the pictures, I, I saw it on the door in, um, in Bedford, England. We went there one time. And saw the building where Mr. Bunyan used to preach. And they have a copper plate on, on each of the two doors there where they illustrate scenes from Pilgrim's Progress. And one of those scenes is him sitting there in a chair with a book in his hand, this huge uh, burden on his back. 
And he's bent over and he's looking at the book. And right across the way from his wife is seated. And she's doing like this to him. She's reasoning with him. She's trying to talk him out of it. They told him he's too nervous. He's all, worked, he's all stressed out. He's all worked up. He needs to relax. He needs to forget. He needs to put that book down and stop reading it. It's making you this way. Stop taking life so serious. Calm down. People in Spain, they worry about what the family's going to say. What's the neighbor's going to say? If I leave the church, a church where they never heard the gospel, a church where they were never told they could be saved without works, a church where, like in that gas station, every time they asked the way to heaven, they were told the direct way to hell. They're worried. What are the people going to say? Whatever you do, don't leave the church. Whatever you do, remember, remember your country, remember your tradition, remember your family, remember we've always been here. And they told me I was born in this church and I'm going to die in this church. I said, you're already dead in this church. You just don't know it. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 that the person who is not born again is dead in trespasses and sins. Cut off from God. No relationship and no fellowship with God. Just like that prodigal son. When he came back to his father, his father said, This my son was dead and is alive. He didn't mean he was physically dead. He meant there was no relationship or fellowship between them and all. No comings and goings. They didn't talk. They, there was nothing between them. He was his son. But there was nothing. And when he came back, he said, This my son was dead and is alive. See? They don't know. And these blind men, they illustrate the pathetic condition of people who don't have Christ, you see. But they also teach us a lesson. Whatever your problem is, whatever your sins may have been or are, it doesn't matter. The details of that don't matter tonight. What matters is Jesus Christ is near. You see? And don't listen to those other voices that tell you calm down. What did Brad say? What did he say? He said, what are people going to say about me? See? Who cares? This is what these fellows reached. This is the point they reached. Your pride says, shh. The devil says, don't make a fuss. Society says, don't make waves. See? But your conscience, the real you on the inside knows what it needs to do. Help! Oh, Lord, thou son of David, they said. And they said it in a loud voice. They cried the more. You see, they had a, there was a moment there where they were tested. The multitude said to them, they rebuked them. They didn't just say, would you mind being quiet? They said, hey, that's enough. Cut it out. Be quiet. And the world tells you that, and the flesh tells you that, and the devil tells you that. Be quiet. So you're going to do it? You're going to do it? You're going to be a fool? You're going to take that bad advice? You're going to be quiet. 
Follow that bad advice. Shut up. You're just going to sit there and let your last opportunity pass. Jesus is walking by. He's walking by. The years of his life on earth, it's all boiled down now to a few minutes and maybe to a few seconds. He's passing by in front of them. What are they going to do? They're going to be quiet? They're going to take that advice? They're going to let Jesus go? And then it's going to be too late. Then it's going to be too late. The clock of life is wound but once. And no man has the power to tell just when the hands will stop at late or early hour. Now is the only time you own. Love, work, and with a will, place no faith in tomorrow. For then the clock may be still. And these men didn't say tomorrow. They didn't say it. They said now. And they didn't listen to the multitude. What does it matter how many people are against you? What does it matter how many people are criticizing you? What does it matter who's telling you to be quiet? The Lord is there. Who are you going to listen to? You're going to listen to those people who can't save your soul, who can't forgive you one single sin, who cannot accompany you in the hour of death through death's door and into eternity. You're going to listen to them. You do that, you're going to take some bad advice. And you'll have time to regret it, but you won't have time to change it. This is serious business, see. And these men knew it, and that's what I like about them. I like it when a person doesn't listen to bad advice, when they refuse to shut up, when they know that it's their moment, when they know that God has arranged things, that this meeting is not an accident, that we're here tonight. This is not uh, circumstance. This is not the law of probabilities. God has arranged it, and the Lord is near, and he's calling. He's present, and he's able to do something. Now, what are you going to do? I like it. See, they weren't proper, well-behaved, middle class, upper middle class, whatever, Americans, Westerners. They were beggars. They knew what they were. And they knew what they needed. And they knew who had it. And it was him. They heard the word. They sat by the road. They heard people talk. They knew who Jesus was. They knew what he had done. And they knew that he could do it. And you know it too tonight. You know who Jesus is. You've listened. You know who he is. You know he came from heaven. You know he was born of a virgin. You know God sent him to heaven. You know he lived a perfect life. No one could convict him of any sin, of any wrongdoing. Even Pilate said before he sent him to the cross, I find no guilt in this man. Nothing worthy of death. And you know it. You know he died innocent. And the Bible says he died for your sins. I don't know how many times we've quoted that verse this week. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That's what Jesus was doing there. It wasn't a statement about love. 
It wasn't that. It is that. It gives you that. But that wasn't what he went there. He didn't just die on the cross to show everybody that he's peace and love. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't an illustration of a philosophy of nonviolence. That's not what Jesus was doing there. What he was doing there was suffering as a substitute for our sins. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And he was there, hanging there, just like all those lambs, all those animals in the Old Testament. When a person would sin, he'd have to bring a lamb. They'd have to cut his throat. The lamb would die. They'd put it on an altar. It would be burned. And in that way, the man learned, the woman learned how serious sin is. I committed a sin. And so that God would forgive me, that lamb had to die. And they didn't just hand to the priest and say, you know what to do, and walk off. It says the one who brings a lamb has to slit its throat. One time when I was in the mountains of Morocco, I saw, I went to a place where they had a, was a big open field and all the people from the mountain villages around came down to this big open field and they had a market. They sold uh, livestock, cows, sheep, goats, donkeys. Uh, people brought food. It's kind of like a county fair, but they, they would come down several times a year and do this in the parking lot. It was a place about as big as this room here full of about 250 donkeys. There's no cars up in that area, no roads. And uh, one man bought a cow. I was watching. They haggle over the price, up and down, too much, too little, back and forth. They act like they're mad with each other. The Americans can't bargain because they get intimidated by this kind of thing. Am I right, Adel? <laughs> they go up and down, and back and forth. And finally, they agree on a price. But he wants the cow not to breed or not to have milk. He wants it for me. So the man took the cow. He tied him to a post like that post there. Tied the cow to a post. He took a big long knife, and I'm standing about as far away as I am from that post watching, and he just went, slit that cow's throat standing up. And he bled, or she bled, and died and fell right there. And I was standing there watching. See, we don't think about that when we buy a pound of uh, hamburger at the store or chicken breasts. We don't think about what went on. We live in a sterile society. If we want violence, we go turn on the television. The old world, they didn't have to have that. They had all the violence they wanted down at the meat market, see. I stood there watching that, and I was thinking about the Old Testament sacrifices. A man brings a bullock, and he slits his throat, and it dies because that man has to give a sin offering. He sinned, and the Lord said, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, see. And so life for life. And I stood there and watched that animal die, and I cried like a baby. You cannot imagine. There was a couple of people with me, and I turned. I was embarrassed. I couldn't control myself. I couldn't stop crying. All I could think about was how pitiful that sight looked, the cow, how his eyes got big, and it was agonizing back and forth. And all the time I'm thinking, this is supposed to teach us how serious sin is. These animal sacrifices were nothing in the world but an illustration of that great sacrifice that was to come when Jesus died on the cross for us. The pain, the agony, see. What did John say when he pointed to Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God. Not this man's lamb and that man's lamb and the other man's lamb. The Lamb sent from God. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he was God's Lamb. 
He was suffering for us. He was agonizing for sins that I committed. Was it for sins that I have done? He groaned upon the tree. Yes. The answer is yes. It was for me. It was for me. They're not going to be quiet. Have mercy on me, thou son of David. This is their opportunity. And they're calling out. And the multitude's telling them to be quiet, but they're not going to take that bad advice. So what did the Lord do? The first time they called, the first time they called, seems like he kept walking because it says they called the multitude, rebuked them, and they called again. They're going to quit? Are they serious? Are they going to be easily discouraged? Are they going to find an excuse? Are they going to sit there and say, well, I tried, but he didn't hear me. Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. They cried over the voice of the multitude. Now Jesus stopped. They're serious. The Lord is always serious about us. But you know what our problem is? We're not always serious about him. We're not. We play with God. It's like tug of war. The Spanish call it tira y afloja. We pull and then we let go. And then we pull again a little bit. No, no, they weren't playing around. They weren't playing games with God. If you play games with God, one of those times you're going to pull and you're not going to find anybody on the other end of the rope. It's going to be too late. They called, have mercy on us. They didn't say, what time is it? They asked for mercy. They didn't say, Lord, we need vengeance. We don't have any eyes. Society treats us bad and these people and they don't give us enough money. How about giving? They asked for mercy. They didn't ask for rights. They didn't ask for other things that could have been inconsequential and could have been to their Eternal doom. If they spent time thinking about other things, they asked for mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is undeserved favor. You think you're going to work your way to heaven. You're going to try to be a good person, keep the Ten Commandments, more or less, although many people that tell me that, I ask them then, and what are the Ten Commandments? So I'll warn you. If you tell me you're going to keep the Ten Commandments, I'm going to ask you what they are. And then you're not going to be able to tell me what they are. If you're like about 90% of the people I talk to, you'll get by about three or four of them. But if there's ten... If there's a chain with ten links, how many links have to break before it's broken? One. One's enough. So don't come on to me with this Ten Commandments stuff. See? And even if you know what they are, if you really know what they are, you know how impossible it is to keep them. That's why the New Testament tells us there is none good, no, not one. You can't do it, see? They needed mercy. Sometimes the Spanish say, Oh, well, cuando me muera, pues que Dios me dé lo que me merezca. When I die, uh, I hope God will give me what I deserve. And then I say to him in Spanish, Te la marinera. Say, you want what you deserve? Look out, brother. You want what you deserve? The wages of sin is death. Don't ask God to give you what you deserve. Jesus Christ hung on the cross at Calvary to keep you from having to get what you deserve. That's what he was doing there. 
That's what he was doing there. He got, hear me now, he got what you deserve. What I deserve. That should have been me. Not him. Not him. See? And this is what this passage is telling us. See? And you know these things. You know this. You know what Jesus did for you. You know what's in your heart. You know what you need. So what about it? Are you looking for mercy tonight? I know someone who has it. The Bible says, God who is rich in mercy. He's got more mercy than you can think of. More mercy than you can dream of. More than you'll ever need. He's rich in it. And there's no inflation and no depression in the heavenly stock market. He's rich forever in it. So they cried out, have mercy. And how did they call to him? You notice what they said. Oh, Lord, thou son of David. What are they calling him? Why are they calling him the son of David? He's the son of Mary. Ah, but they know about him, don't they? They know that he's descended from David. You see, the Lord promised King David that his descendants would always sit on the throne of Israel. And in the Psalms and in other places in the Old Testament, like the book of Isaiah, for example, we learn... That the Messiah is going to be born in David's family and in David's town of Bethlehem. And when they call him the son of David, they're calling him the Messiah. The anointed one, the Savior. They're calling him that. And I call him Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Nazarene. And too many people, I don't like the way they talk to Jesus. They just call him Jesus like that. Just like Jesus. You know, in Spain, Jesus, Jesus is anybody's name. His title, Jesus, Messiah, Yeshua, Messiah. Jesus, Messiah, Jesus, Lord, Jesus, Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what it really means. See? O Lord, thou Son of David, have mercy. Messiah. In the Old Testament it said when Messiah comes, he will cause the blind to see. And he will cause the lame to walk. And they said, oh Lord, we know who you are. You can do it. You're the son of David. Have mercy on us. They're calling him. And that's what the Lord wants you to do tonight. He wants you to recognize that Jesus Christ is the one who can forgive your sins. And who can change your life. Lord, it's you. I know it's you. You can have mercy on me. You have it to give, and I need it, see. And so Jesus stood still. And here's the moment. Here's the great moment. He calls them. He stopped. He called them, and he asked them a question. And this, my friends, is life's most important question. There are times when the Lord is near, when you have an opportunity, as you do tonight, And the question comes from his lips and from heaven to you. And the question is, what do you want me to do to you? What do you want me to do to you? Big question. Life's most important question. Special question, an opportunity. What do you want me to do? People don't know how to answer it. 
Some people don't. A lot of people don't. But I wonder if you do. These men knew what they wanted. Some people would ask for money. These men were there begging. They didn't ask for any money. Some men would ask, people would ask for a ride home. They didn't ask for a ride home. Some people asked for an education for their children. They didn't ask for that. Some people asked for a girlfriend or a boyfriend, a wife or a husband. Some people asked to know what the winning number is going to be on the lottery for the next day. <laughs> Lord, could I have a car? Could I have a nice career? What are you going to ask him for? What's the most important thing? See, these men knew they had a problem that humanity couldn't solve. They were blind, and no one could help them. And they said, Lord, what did they say? No, we just, we heard you were going by. Could you give me your autograph? I want to go home and tell people I heard about Jesus today. And They said, Lord. That our eyes may be opened. They knew he could solve their problem. This is a good place to start. A lot of things you don't see. A lot of things you don't understand. Start by telling the Lord this. Easier than I start by telling the Lord, open my eyes. Open my eyes. Let me see. Get the blindness away. Let me see. And if you see already, then you know what your need is. You need to be saved. You need to be forgiven. You need to have new life from him. And so you ask him for it. What are you going to ask him for? He's near. He's here. What are you going to ask him for? Think before you ask. That our eyes may be open, they said. They knew they were blind and they wanted to see. And if there's someone here tonight who knows that if you die tonight, you're not going to go to heaven. In the condition that you're in right now, you have no Hope, you've never been born again. You have no hope of being in heaven except you just say, well, I hope God will have mercy on me. That ain't the way it works, pal. You choose him in this life, in the now and the here. You choose him or you don't choose him at all. See? You have a problem that humanity can't solve. You have a problem that money can't fix. And society can't help you with it. It's a spiritual problem. It's an internal problem. It's a problem with a nature that is inclined to sin and to do wrong and to live in conflict and to be unhappy and unfulfilled. All of this is in us. And we can't do anything about it except buy more televisions and boats and planes and homes and have more vacations and listen to more music and see more movies and try to erase it out and numb the nerves and let the world be our stewardess and keep us entertained while we head for that destination. We can't do anything about it. But the Lord can change it. He can make us new on the inside. We already heard a testimony about that. Ask him. Ask him to open your eyes and show you your true condition. If he's done that tonight and you see it, ask him to save you. He died on the cross to save you. Say, Lord, I believe when you died on the cross, that was for me. My eyes have been opened. I know why you died there. I know I'm the sinner that Jesus died for on the cross. And I'm not going to be quiet. 
I'm not going to be calmed down. I'm not going to try to ease my way through and finesse it. I'm not going to worry about what people think, and I'm not going to think about tomorrow. I'm going to do it now. See, this is what they did. And what did Jesus do? Verse 34. So Jesus said, I've been here three years going up and down this road, three times a year to Jerusalem. I've been passing by here. I've seen you, and you never said, hello, Jesus, how you are doing. You didn't talk to me. And now on this last trip, here you come. Hey, Jesus, son of David, Uh uh-huh. He didn't say that. If you come to the Lord, the Bible says, the Lord says, in who... Uh, whoever comes to me, he who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. The Lord never treats people that way. He never scorns us. The only way you get scorn from the Lord is if you throw away all your opportunities and go into eternity without him. Then it will be too late. And then he'll say what he says in Proverbs chapter 2. Then they will call upon me and I will not answer. But not in this life. Not now. If you call... I have it on the authority of the word of God. If you call, he'll answer. He had compassion because he does. He feels for us. What do you think he came to this earth for? Did he need to come to the earth and die on the cross for things that he had never done? No, he did it because he loves us. He did it in his compassion, his desire to save us, that we might be forgiven and have a new life, be changed people and made fit for heaven. He wants us to be there with him. Now, you go and figure on that. Do the math. God, who is self-sufficient, who has everything and needs nothing, and yet he wants our company. He wants us to be with him in heaven. He wants us to be there. He wants to have fellowship with you. He likes to see your face and hear your voice, and he wants your feet under his table at heaven, in heaven. He does. I think it's wonderful. I just think it's wonderful. It says Jesus had compassion on him. You don't come to Jesus if you don't call out to him. If you don't go into eternity a saved person, you know this. Don't ever accuse God of not caring or not having compassion because he's got it. And you will remember for all eternity that Jesus had compassion but that you didn't have faith was the problem, see. He had compassion. He touched their eyes. And what happened? Immediately, it says. Just like in the book of Mark. Immediately. It wasn't a process. They didn't say, Oh, man, could you do that again? I see a little bit of it. A little bit more. I'm blurred. This eye, uh, I'm up to about uh, 2040 here. No, no, no. Just like that, they got their sight. Just like that. The things that followed in the week that followed, Those blind men, because they followed him, went into Jerusalem, and they saw a lot of blind men. They saw a lot of blind people, spiritually blind people, who crucified their Messiah, who rejected him. They saw a lot of blindness in Israel. I think maybe they stood before the cross and said, it would have been better not to have my eyes than to have to see this. What those eyes saw in that last week, that they would never forget. He touched their eyes, and immediately... Their eyes received sight, and it says they followed him. Because that's what we do. When we come into a relationship with Christ, that's what we do. 